Off our reading this evening, we're going back to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, we began looking at this psalm last Sunday evening, and we're returning again there this evening. Psalm 139, for the director of music of David. This is what God's word says. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, And the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me. And know my anxious thoughts, see if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible with you, then uh, please do turn back to Psalm 139. And as we turn there, let's uh, pray uh, together. Father, your statutes are always righteous. Give us understanding uh, that we may live. Oh Lord, your word is never wrong. And so we pray for help to hear your voice this evening, that we might live our lives in right view of you, in deeper fellowship with you. For our good and your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday evening, I began by asking the question, what is your God like? What is your God like? Well, if you're not a believer in God, an equally interesting question to think about and answer is well what is the God that you don't believe in like and we thought that there are lots of views out there that your friends and family and colleagues 
might have of what God is like. And so many of them don't pay much, if any, attention to what the Bible has to say about this great question. But even as Christians, our thinking can sometimes be off-centre. We can become complacent. We can subtly falter in having a right view of God. Often that can lead us to having too small a view of God. We can have small thoughts of him. We have a a low, me-centred view of who God is. We can try and put God in a box. We can try and keep him at our level. And we limit him so that we're happy with who God is. We define the boundaries. And that way we're not open to, to being challenged or convicted by who he reveals himself to be. That can be a real danger to us as Christians. And so that is why we're spending these two Sunday evenings in Psalm 139, where any small thoughts that you might have of God are simply blown away. They are stunningly done away with. And yet what is so striking about this magnificent psalm is that for all of the height and for all of the depth of who God is, in all of its mind-blowing truth, it is intensely personal from the first line to the last. The great God of highest heaven can be personally known by you and me. Now, last Sunday evening, we considered the first half of Psalm 139, and and tonight we're back for part two for the second half. This psalm has been called the, the crown of all psalms, and it wonderfully reveals to us who our God really is. What is the one true living God like? How can we describe him? And we saw in the opening 12 verses two things. The first, that God knows all things, that there is absolutely nothing in all of time and all of space uh, that he does not know. And that such knowledge is personal. It is intimate. He knows all about me and you and our actions. Those thoughts, those words, he knows it all. And so David declared in verse 1, you've searched me, Lord, and you know me. God knows all things. And then secondly, we saw that God is present everywhere. There is nowhere that we can go in the whole universe where God is not. That's a wonderful comfort. We saw that if you're a Christian because it means you will never find yourself outside of the loving care of your Father God, of his compassion, of his presence. No matter where we might be in all the world, we saw in verse 10, even there, your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast as much encouragement hopefully for you to to take from the first half of this psalm last week in knowing that God is all-knowing and present everywhere and as we enter the second half of uh, this psalm this evening there's more encouragement uh, to be found Uh, two more truths of of who our God is that you might be encouraged in your Christian walk that you might be helped to face the week to come knowing that this is the God that you know personally and who is with you And if you don't know this God yet, if you're not trusting in him, then I I hope that you'll see that this really is who God is. And you can know him and you can trust him and you can commit your life uh, to him. And in these uncertain days in which we're living, we can have a rock-solid, dependable hope. And so then, the first truth that I want us uh, to see this evening is found in verses 13 to 18. And it is that God is all-powerful. God is all-powerful. 
In this third section of the psalm, the, those opening thoughts of God knowing all and being everywhere present are, are brought together and carried forward in a wonderful way. He, God doesn't only know and see everything and is present in the most inaccessible places, but he's at work. He is active. He is all-powerful. There are, there are no limits on God's power to do what he decides to do. God is infinitely powerful. He is able to do all of his holy will. Nothing is too hard for him. He can do anything and everything that is consistent with his holy and perfect character. God is all-powerful. That is the God of the Bible. As we pick up here now, in the second half of this psalm, we're building on what we've already seen. God knows all about us in intimate detail. He knows us better than we know ourselves because... He made us. He is all-powerful. Take a look at what David says here in verses 13 and following. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. The creator knows his creatures. Even before we were born, God, the all-powerful, knows us. Even before birth, David ascribes the, the amazing development of a tiny embryo in the womb to the creative power of God. You and I are here this evening. We're only here because of God, because he has said so. He is the one who has made us in his creative wisdom and power. And so whether it is our inmost being of, of mind or emotion or will or our physical frame, the Lord is the one who has made you fearfully and wonderfully, we're told. He's, he's knitted us together. Every baby, every unborn baby is precious in the sight of the Lord because they are his handiwork. Each baby is a miracle of life and it is a source of of great heart, heartbreak and, and sadness when so many never see the light of day. It's become uh, emotionally charged, even political debate, certainly in the United States as an election looms later in the year. But the Lord tells us here of his power that has fearfully and wonderfully made us. And it's not for us to play God and to end those unborn lives before they are born. Even the, the birth of a baby is against all the odds, really, from a biological perspective. There are so many things that have to happen for a child to develop in the womb. It is an extraordinary miracle as bones and organs develop, as nerves and nerve endings all connect up. And it all shows us that God is all-powerful. One of my favorite examples of this is, is of the optic nerve in each of our eyes. So we've all got an optic nerve, and it's a big bundle of more than one million nerve fibers that carry the visual messages. So you can see me now because of your optic nerve. And it goes from the back of your eye to the brain. And when babies are developing in the womb, each of those one million fibers in the optic nerve, they have to connect up and match at either end of the nerve. So the one in the retina in our eye and the other in the brain. So for us to be able to see, 
each of those nerves must match up. So it's literally one in one million. So that you and I can see. And the fact that so many of us can see, and we're born with sight, it is an incredible thing. And that's just one aspect of our whole human bodies that are so complex, being formed. It really is amazing. God is all powerful. Friends, all of us owe our existence to God this evening. He's formed us as physical and spiritual beings. And if we are trusting in him, then we know for certainty that we are here with purpose. We're not accidents. The Lord has formed you with reason. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. There's something incredibly reassuring about the personal language of these verses here, isn't there? The Lord hasn't simply made us, but he's concerned with all those he has formed for his purpose. That's what this psalm is teaching us. Isn't it mind-boggling to think that before we are born, all the days of our life are planned. They are recorded for us by God. See that there in verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Christian, you know and you love and you trust in the God who has planned and has ordained all things. Every single day. The number of days that we will live. And he did that before we even lived one of those days. And we do live in times that are very uncertain. There's a lot of tension on the world stage, on our news, because there are nations at war and there are rumours of other wars. There's economic uncertainty. There's political unrest. But God has ordained all our days. And we are here for this day, for such a time as this, because he has said so in all of his power. He's made us that we be here in this place at this time, living through history when we are. He knew what we would be facing and he's ordained all of our days. And that's something that you can rest in. You can rest in that. He knows. He cares. And he is the one who, in his power, has brought us into existence. He's brought this whole world into existence. And by his power, he will continue to sustain this world and our lives for the days that he has ordained. It's a wonderful encouragement, Christian, isn't it? To know that. You can keep on going this week in your Christian life. Because the Lord has you here for a reason. This day was ordained for you to keep on going with him, to keep on looking to him, to keep on living for him, to keep on shining brightly for him, to tell others of him, to glorify him in all you do. I wonder, friend, if you're realizing, maybe even for the first time, that we human beings are here because of God, because he says so, because he's the all-powerful one, that we owe our initial and continued existence to the one true all-powerful God our days are numbered by him he is sovereign and in his wisdom he has ordained this nothing takes him by surprise because in his power he does all things well I wonder do you believe that this evening is this who your God is do you believe that God is the all-powerful creator of the universe and he's made little old you and little old me What's so wonderful about this psalm is that it doesn't just present us with good and correct theology. 
which we need, and that is helpful, and, but it goes no further. No, this is a, a truth which leads us to praise, to personal praise. We've already read of that in verse 14, where David says, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. So David is driven to praise to the Lord as he dwells on who he is. And it is this divine knowledge that causes him to burst out into praise in verses 17 and 18, where he calls the, the thoughts of God, the all-powerful one, precious and vast. Look at those words with me there. How precious to me are your thoughts, God? How vast is the sum of them? Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, what a thought this is. As the psalmist reflects on God on his personal Lord and Saviour, he is blown away by the sheer magnificence of the purposes of of who he is and all of his power. The thoughts of the Lord are simply too magnificent. They are too numerous. They are too exalted for us whose thoughts are fully known by him. His thoughts are above our thoughts. His ways are above our ways. It's absolutely impossible for us small creatures to fully comprehend, to understand our creator, his plans, his ways, his purposes. They are beyond our ability to understand. They are more numerous than all the sand in all the world. Now, I quite like a trip down the beach. I wonder if you do as well. And It won't be too long, hopefully, until we can go uh, down to the beach uh, again and we can uh, enjoy all that the seaside gives us. And whenever we go down to the beach, no matter how hard you try, the sand just always gets everywhere, doesn't it? No matter how hard you try, those tiny little grains of sand, they get in your shoes, they get in your bag, they get in your pockets, and you're just finding it for days afterwards, aren't you? It's in the car, you think you've hoovered it, but it's still there because sand is so small and it gets everywhere. And if you went down to the beach and you you took a handful of sand, you'd see that you'd probably have hundreds, if not thousands, of grains of sand just in your hand. And then you'd look out at the rest of the beach, pick your beach of choice, three cliffs, the the mumbles down in Rosilli, wherever it is. You look out on the rest of the beach and you think, how many more grains of sand must there be just on this one beach? And you probably end up losing count because there'd be far too many just on that one beach. And then you stop and think, well, how many more beaches are there in all the world? And you'd be left realising that there is an uncountable number of grains of sand in our world. It just can't be counted. There's just too many. You just couldn't do it. And that is how precious, that's how vast the thoughts of the all-powerful creator God really are. All this really does mean that We just cannot comprehend our God. He is so great. His plans are beyond our plans. He is the all-powerful creator. And because that is who he is, he knows far more and far better than we do. And his sovereign plans are far beyond our ability to understand. And they are more than the sand on the seashore. And yet, the 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon has this wonderful thought. That God should think upon him is the believer's greatest treasure. 
that God should think upon you is believer your greatest treasure. It's a great encouragement for us this evening. Even though the Lord is the, the all-knowing and present everywhere, all-powerful God, and we are finite, limited human beings who are so weak and we're so frail, and yet in the midst of your circumstances, our God's care is such for you this evening that though his thoughts are so vast, he thinks upon you. He thinks upon you in your worries about school this week, uh, in work or in family, that situation that's really strained at the moment as you're concerned for your loved ones, as you're anxious about what the future has in store for you and your family, as you're frustrated, disappointed, you're grieving, you're despairing, in whatever state you find yourself tonight, friend, God thinks upon you. He is one who is all-powerful, in creating us and in sustaining us. And he is, in his grace, one who is too wonderful for us to comprehend. The Lord has displayed his power. And we know that once and for all in, in his sending of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come and to conquer death and to conquer hell at the cross and rising again from the grave. If you want to see the power of the all-powerful God, then, friend, you've got to look to the cross. You see there the power of God to forgive. To forgive you for all the wrong things that you've committed. See there the power to defeat the greatest enemies of sin and death and hell. See the power to save you from the darkness of your life that is lost without God. I wonder if this evening, brothers and sisters, will you respond to this God, to the Lord, full of praise, knowing that full well his works are wonderful. Full of praise that he is the all-powerful God who's made himself known to us in love and in grace. Do you cherish these precious thoughts here in God's word? Proof of his infinite commitment. He will not leave the work of his own hands to chance or to extinction. We can say, as David could, at the end of verse 18, that no matter what happens, I am still with you. Which, given what we've already seen in this psalm, it reaffirms that death itself will not separate us from our all-powerful creator. God is all-powerful. That's who your God is, Christian. He is all-powerful. He's made you. He's keeping you. He's upholding you. And wonderfully, he thinks upon you. Isn't that precious? So we come in praise for his greatness this evening, for his power. This is our God. He knows all things. He's present everywhere. And now this evening we are seeing that he is, he's all powerful. And then secondly, as we conclude this psalm, a final truth for us is this, that God is our judge. God is our judge, which we see in verses 19 to the end there in verse 24. God is our judge. And after all that we've seen, so far, speaking of praising our God for his knowledge and for his power, this might seem like a bit of a shift in gears. It seems to be a bit of a different tone to the rest of the psalm. And maybe you've been able to go along with all you've heard so far, but now you feel a little bit uncomfortable to hear that, oh, God is our judge. But actually, it is perfectly consistent with what we've seen so far, because if you cannot deceive or escape or ignore God, well, then why would you go on rejecting him? Doesn't it make more sense to listen to him and obey him? 
you think that that's a very reasonable thing to say, but there are many in this world this evening, and maybe you're one of them, who continue to oppose, and you reject God, and you dispute him and his words. And what these final verses do show us is that the experience of David communicates that when a person's world is so full of God, when they are trusting in and following the, the one true living God as he reveals himself to us here in his word, they long for the elimination of evil. Now, we all have a sense of justice within us, don't we? So wouldn't you want a world that is empty of all evil? That sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? So do you notice how David describes those who are opposed to God? In verses 19 to 22, they're called things like the wicked, uh, you who are bloodthirsty, uh, they speak with evil intent, they're adversaries that misuse your name, those who are in rebellion against you, enemies. Strong stuff, isn't it? Strong language. This is how David views those who oppose God. He sees the lack of respect that the, the wicked have for, for life. They thirst for blood. They've got no regard for righteousness and justice. He sees that they don't recognize the Lord and his authority. David recognizes that there are those in the world who set themselves up against God and against his people. And that the human heart by nature is one that is in revolt against the great commandment of God to love him and to love your neighbor. Now, what we've got to be clear on here is that this isn't David expressing personal feelings of revenge. As Christians, we're not to be vengeful towards others. Now, what is going on here is that David has come to count those who are God's enemies, as seen in verse 20. They're God's adversaries. But by verse 22, they are his enemies. David is displaying a, a righteous indignation. He is burning with divine hatred of sin. Now what might make us uncomfortable is that shouldn't David be distinguishing between evil and the evildoer? Shouldn't he and indeed we? What we might often hear said is we should love the sin but hate the sinner. Well there is truth in that and I'll come back to our love for all people in a moment. But as John Stott says, this approach can be overpressed for evil is not something abstract. It exists in the hearts and ways of evil doers. So when the judgment of God falls, it will fall upon evil doers, not upon evil in the abstract. What we're seeing here is that in light of who God is, in all of his greatness and all of his majesty and wonder and power and beauty and awesomeness, devotion to the one true living God excludes all loyalty to those who hate him. And throughout the Psalms, we find the psalmist so overflowing in love and in praise to God for his wonderful character and glorious name that they were concerned with the expression of holiness on earth. And since evil contrasts in every way with God's nature and his plans, the psalmist here and elsewhere often prays for divine judgment through which God's order would be reestablished and his people would be reassured of his love. So to be clear, this strong language is not David being spiteful. It is zeal for his great and awesome God. But even then you might object and say, surely while there is hope, we should desire the salvation of sinners and not judgment. And you'd be absolutely right. 
But what if sinners ultimately refuse to repent? If they are defiantly unwilling to receive the free offer of salvation found in Jesus Christ alone, then there's no other alternative for them. And this isn't just David going off on one. This is how God sees us. This is God's attitude towards us. Listen to the words of Jesus. He teaches that we sinners are at the same time objects of God's love and wrath. Compare the most famous verse in the whole Bible in John 3.16. That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world. But then in the very same chapter, in verse 36, Jesus says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. And brothers and sisters, by grace, our attitude and outlook should reflect the Lord's. We do love our neighbour. We love each one. We love the sinner. And because of that, we should earnestly and eagerly desire the salvation of sinners, that they would repent we do that we absolutely do but here the lord says was equally we should pray that if they're not willing to repent that justice will be done and judgment will be fulfilled by the all-knowing everywhere present all-powerful god who is the judge of all the earth we pray for salvation but if they will not repent we pray that the judge of all the earth will do what is right. We pray that he will be true to himself and will judge each one in accordance with what they've done with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that is a difficult, not an easy thing to hear. I appreciate that. And we need to think about this more and apply it to ourselves with the Lord's help. But let's admit this. We do find it difficult, if not impossible, to express such sentiments as David does here with this divine purity that the Lord has without mixing it with any kind of personal sense of vengeance. We find this difficult to do. But in the words of John Stott again, let's acknowledge the reason. Is it because we know little of a truly righteous indignation what a challenge that is i'm relying on the help of a wise saints that have gone before us on this point so let's hear what spurgeon helpfully says on this that to love all men with benevolence is our duty but to love any wicked man with complacency would be a crime we are to love we absolutely are we're to be loving to others but to those who evidently love wickedness and they want nothing to do with God well we can do nothing more than pray for them and pray that if they do not come to the Lord Jesus we pray that they would repent but if they will not we simply pray that justice will be done of course as the Lord does we don't want any to perish but we want all to come to faith but if they will not and that's what this is saying if they will not then ultimately God the judge will be just I find that really convicting and as we're committed to growing in faith, we've got to ask ourselves, are we as committed to godliness as David was? That we're righteously upset and angry in, in a godly sense at the wicked and at the evil in our world and in the lives of those around us. Because if God is, 
And if we are devoted to him, then we will too. C.S. Lewis observed that the tone of this cry of the psalmists may be explained because they took right and wrong more seriously. I wonder what you think of that. Friends, we're being reminded this evening that there is such a thing as wickedness and it is hateful to the Lord. The reality of evil is clear, but so is the hope of restoration. Friend, you might be listening to this and you know that you're an enemy of God. You've rejected God in your life so far and had nothing to do with him. And in the words of Jesus that we heard earlier from John 3, if you stay that way, you will perish and God's wrath will remain on you. You've not come to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And God's justice says that you'll be judged for remaining an enemy towards him, for misusing his name, for hating him. But if you will come this evening, turning from living the life that you have and placing your faith wholly in him, then you will not perish, no matter what life throws at you. You will be safe, for you will no longer know condemnation, for you will be safe in Jesus Christ. So when you come to him this evening, trust in the Lord Jesus. Come to know the one true living God, that you might foremost relate to God as Father in heaven, not your judge. Will you do that this evening if you haven't already? But Christian, as we come towards the end of this psalm, let's not get carried away looking out at others in view of all these reflections. David knows that he faces evil within himself. And so he invites the Lord to continue his work of searching and knowing and leading his heart. And so here in verses 23 and 24, we've got a good prayer for us to pray this week and every week. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It can be very easy, Christian, to point the finger, can't it? It can be easy to find fault in others and what they do and what they say and how they did that thing, which you would never have done something like that. And we can be so narrow, can't we? We can be so self-centered and always think that we're right. But we need to remember what Jesus said to Peter at the end of John's gospel when Peter was asking the Lord, well, what's going to happen to John? And Jesus says, well, don't focus on John. You just focus on your responsibility, which was what? To follow Jesus. To follow Jesus. We're not the judge. I'm not the judge. You're not the judge. He is. And so we need to make sure that we're following the Lord Jesus. That's what we're called to do. And we commit everyone else to the Lord. And so that's why David says, search me, God. He doesn't say search them, search those people. No, search me. And he hasn't said what he has because of pride, but because of a genuine commitment to the Lord. He was a genuine worshipper of God. He desired others to possess the, the same character. That's clear from this prayer. He's asking for God to discern his motives and his actions. And this means that whoever we are this evening, we need to come to God in repentance today. Christian, you need to daily come to the Lord in repentance for those sins that you've committed, for those things that you've not done but you should have. And David wants nothing less than this. He desires conformity to the will of God. He wants to be more like his God. And so he prays for God to examine his spiritual condition and to do what? To lead him in the way everlasting. He wants to be led into greater fellowship, into deeper life 
with God. Christian, that prayer is a good prayer to pray this week, frequently in our walk with the Lord, that he will continue to search us and lead us in the way of life. Because remember that this prayer, this prayer of the Lord searching us is in the context of praise for who he is. He's all-knowing. He's present everywhere. He's all-powerful. So, of course, he is the judge. No one is better placed to be the judge of this world than God himself. But today is the day of salvation. And while today is still called today, there's opportunity for any of us to come to this Jesus, this God in saving faith, the one who took our judgment on himself. So when God the judge now looks at us, he doesn't see us, but he sees Jesus who died on our behalf. Friend, will you come to this wonderful, majestic, unmatchable God this evening? When you commit your life to him and have your faith firmly in him alone to save you from your sins. And if you have, well then will you come again this evening to the all-knowing, all-powerful God who is everywhere, not fearing him as a judge, but as a loving father who hears our prayers and is worthy of your praise. Will you come asking him to lead you in the way everlasting, asking him to lead you into a deeper fellowship with him. This is our God. This is who he is. And we're led to praise him in awe and in wonder through the words of this psalm. That in the midst of your circumstances this week, financial worries, health concerns, personal struggles, anxieties about the future, no matter how big or small the stresses or strains that we might have, this is our God. And you know him, Christian. He's with you. He cares for you. He loves you. He knows all about you. And he will see that justice is done in the end because he is the great God of wonders. All his ways are matchless. They're God-like, divine. He is the king. He's all glorious. And so this day and this week, may we be a people who gratefully sing of his power and of his love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for showing us who you really are in your word. And we confess this evening that we can sometimes have a wrong view of you or a small view of you. Forgive us for that, Lord, and help us to praise you as we should. Please search us and know our hearts and lead us in the way of life this week. Lead us on in fellowship with you. Father, thank you for making us. Thank you that you judge uh, all of this earth and you will do what is right. You're just and you're good and you're upright in all you do. And we thank you that through faith in the Lord Jesus, we can say that we now know no condemnation. Thank you for your grace towards us as we pray all these things in our Saviour's name. Amen.